So it's Eric Kafka, so I, uh, I know that your mind is probably not too much on the things that we talk about, but hopefully uh, uh, it'll be of some use. You know, again, um, we've been talking about fertility issues, and then we move to marriage. We talk about marriage and divorce for a while, and then we'll move to other things, kashras and some aspects of Shabbos and the like. And again, let me uh, remind you that uh, I'm very happy to talk about uh, any topic you'd want me to talk about. So feel free to either tell me or send me an email. I'll be happy to uh, make a share based on what you're interested in. Uh, what I want to go over is maybe some way of a quick review before we uh, start into the ceremony of marriage. I should Thank you, you too. Uh, and just want to mention once again, that's something that's very Nogeo Lemaisa, uh, which women can or cannot marry a Kohen, because it's a, it's a little more complicated than people think, because there's a certain intergenerational aspect of it. The primary categories are fairly simple. There's essentially four women a Kohen cannot marry. Uh, category one is a Gerusha, a woman that received a Jewish divorce. That's called a Get. Get is simply the name for a, a piece of paper, actually it's a piece of parchment, uh, that uh, is a Jewish divorce. So a Kohen cannot marry a Grusha. A Kohen can marry a widow. The second category a Kohen cannot marry is a Gioris. A Kohen cannot marry a woman who converted to Judaism. And it makes no difference if she converted as a child or as an adult. That makes no difference either way. A Kohen cannot marry. Number three, a Kohen cannot marry. Now, the terrorist word Lashon here is a Kohen cannot marry a Zona. Now, this is a little confusing because the standard translation of a Zona is a prostitute. But Lemaisa, Halacha gives it a much broader definition than just a prostitute. It basically means a Kohen cannot marry a woman who has had sexual intercourse with a non-Jew or sexual intercourse in an incestuous relation. So, if a woman had intercourse with a guy, or, God forbid, if a woman had intercourse, you know, God forbid, incestuous with a brother or with a father, uh, she cannot marry a Kohen. That's kind of the sanction. Now, it's very important to note that uh, a non-virgin could marry a meaning if she had sexual intercourse with a Jew in a non-incestuous way, she's not a virgin, she can, C-A-N, she can marry a Kohen. For some reason, I, I, I've just encountered over the years that uh, many women uh, seem to feel, seem to think or learn or mistakenly came to the impression that if they were not a uh, virgin, they could not marry a Kohen, that's only true if they had intercourse with a goy or with, again, incest. incest. Uh, now, if you're a Kohen Gadol, we don't have a Kohen Gadol until Mashiach. If you're a high priest, a Kohen Gadol has, can only marry a virgin. That's a special, a special rule. Okay, so those are three, the three categories. The fourth one will be tricky. So the three basic categories are Gerusha, Gioras, Zona. These women cannot marry a Kohen. Now, there is a fourth category that maybe I'll call a half category. That is, uh, a woman whose father is non-Jewish, even if her mother is Jewish. So she's not a convert. Let's assume a non-Jewish man 
uh, has uh, married civilly a Jewish woman and has a daughter. The daughter is 100% Jewish, no question about it. But the halacha is she too cannot marry a Kohen, but this is a very strange halacha. If Bidiyeved, they did get married, halacha permits them to stay married. This is very unique. If a Kohen marries a divorced woman, or if a Kohen marries a Gioras, or if a Kohen marries a Zona, even after the fact, a Beistin, if they, if they keep halacha, would direct them to get divorced, as tragic as that is. If, on the other hand, a Kohen accidentally, didn't know the halacha, married a woman who is halachically Jewish, but whose father is not Jewish, this is a very strange halacha. They're not allowed to get married. That's called the chatechila. Bidiyeved, if they got married, they can stay married. Permit, there's the chatechila. Once they got married, they don't have to be machner. They don't, they don't have to separate. This is very strange. This is Kemat, the only prohibited marriage, which if it is done, it is allowed to stay in that situation. Okay. Now, I think I did discuss, I don't want to repeat a lot of things we already discussed, some of this is by way of review, that in many, many cases, a person who thinks he's a Kohen may not be sure that he's a Kohen. And that's a very, very important avenue of inquiry uh, because uh, Ramosha Feinstein says, if you only know, if a man only knows he's a Kohen from non-religious relatives, he doesn't necessarily have to believe them because they're not kosher witnesses. So. It's a very important aspect that if a woman is involved uh, with a Kohen to investigate whether the person is a Kohen. Okay. But now there's a fifth category, which is the most complicated. Right? So again, a Garusha, Giores, Zona, then the strange case of a woman whose mother is Jewish, whose father is not Jewish, which is only a Lechatechilo prohibition. But bidiyevet, are you familiar with the word bidiyevet? Bidiyevet means if you've already done it. Bidiyevet, right? We often say in halacha, lachatchila, when you begin to do something, you should do it a certain way. Bidiyevet, if you did it, not in such the best way, so sometimes it's valid. So here too, bidiyevet, this marriage is allowed to stay. Okay. But now there's a fifth category that's really the most complicated, although it starts off easy, but it gets complicated, and that's called chalala. Chalala. Now, chalala simply means the woman that is born from a violation of the laws of kahuna. So, very simple example. If a Kohen marries a Garusha, the daughter is a Chalala. She cannot marry a Kohen. If a, daughter, if a Kohen marries a Gioras, the daughter is a Chalala. She cannot marry a Kohen. If a Kohen marries a, um, a Zona, the daughter is a chalala. She cannot marry a Kohen. Okay? So a chalala is the child, the daughter that was born. And in fact, if a Kohen marries a chalala, <laughs> the daughter is a chalala. I mean, let's just say, let's say a Kohen marries the daughter of another Kohen who married a Grusha. 
Now, since that woman is a halala, a Kohen is transgressing the law of, of Kahuna by marrying a halala, so the daughter is going to be a halala. What about the granddaughter? Oh, okay, so now, this is going to get complicated, so I have to trace it both on the male side and on the female side. On the female side, it actually is fairly simple. And that is, let's take the case. A Kohen marries a Grusha. The daughter is a halala. She can marry anybody she wants, but she cannot marry a Kohen. Okay. So let's say she marries a Yisrael or a Levi. Is that a permissible marriage? Yes, it is. Their daughter has no problem. Their daughter can marry a Kohen. The only time there would be a problem is if the Chalala married a Kohen, because that, because that itself would create another Chalala. Yeah. But as long as the Chalala married a person she's allowed to get married, there is no taint, there is no problem that passes to the next generation. So everyone understands this. Therefore, the daughter of a Chalala is allowed to marry a Kohen, provided the Chalala married a Yisrael or a Ger or a Levi. In other words, did not marry a, a Kohen. Okay? So on the woman's side, it's fairly simple. Chalala will go no further than that first generation. However, when we trace it through the male side, it actually gets much more complicated. Let's now start off with our case. The Kohen marries a divorced woman. Kohen marries a divorced woman. So the girl that they have is called Chalala, and that we just explained. But the boy that is born also has a name, and he is called Chalal. Now, what is the status of a Chalal, first of all? So the first thing to keep in mind is, very simple, a halal is no longer a Kohen, meaning uh, he, is not, uh, he does not dochet, he does not recite the birchas Kohenim, uh, he is not called up first for the Torah, uh, you could not give him the five shekel for pidjon haben, he's not a Kohen, he's a Yisrael, right? So if you were to be asked in a trivial pursuit uh, question, uh, is there any case where someone has a Kohen who is a father and he's not a... Okay, there's some, there are a lot of good answers for this. If his mother is a guy, it's one thing, but okay. But uh, are there cases where my father is a Kohen and I'm not a Kohen? Yeah. One of them is where my father violated the laws of Kahuna by marrying a Grusha or a Zona or a Gioras or a Chalala. So consequence number one of being a Chalal is he's not a Kohen. Okay, but that, that itself just means he's not a Kohen. But consequence number two is the daughter of a Chalal is a Chalala. Which means the following. Let's trace it. A Kohen marries a Gerusha, has a daughter. The daughter is called Chalala. She cannot marry a Kohen. If she marries a Yisrael or a Levi, her daughter can marry a Kohen. And that's the end of it. Now, same case with one change. A Kohen marries a Grusha and has a boy. The boy is called Chalal. 
By the way, a chalol is allowed to marry a bas kohen. Uh, it's interesting. He has no. He has. He himself has no restrictions. But whether he marries a bas kohen or whether he marries a bas Yisrael or a bas Levi, his daughter is chalala. Now the problem is, at that point, it's not going to go to the next generation. But if the chalol has a son, that son is a chalol. In other words, theoretically. Uh, even a great, 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 great granddaughter of a chalal may be puzzled to marry kahuna. Okay, so that's why it's a little complicated. The way, the, one way of describing it is like this, although I don't mean to be pejorative in any way. Let's look at chalalos like a, like a disease, like a genetic defect. Only males carry the defect, but only females get the illness, so to speak. Meaning to say, a woman that's a chalala does not pass it down to anybody. It only gets passed down by the male that's a chalal, even though the male that's a chalal has no disability other than he's not a kohen. So it's like the male is the transmitter, but it's the female that suffers. Of course, one might say that's emblematic of life in general, but okay. Uh, right. Man just causes trouble for the woman, and the woman bears all of the, all of the suffering. Okay, that goes all the way back to the Garden of Eden. Okay, all right. So that's uh, the, the concept. Of, right. So, so this is the basic thing. So again, we have um, Grusha, we have Zona, we have Giores, we have woman whose father is non-Jewish, and then we have Chalala. Right. These are the categories of women who are not allowed to marry a, a Kohen. Did you want to say something? What was the term for these are the laws of... A kahuna. Kahuna just means the priesthood. The laws that apply to Kohen. Now, as I say, it's a very, very important shaila uh, to determine whether somebody is a Kohen. In many, many cases, uh, even if a person thinks he's a Kohen, he may not be. And of course, last names don't mean anything. Because Cohen, Katz, Kaplan, these are common. Rappaport, these are famous Cohen names, but different names were assigned at different times. Uh, so, you know, at least legend has it, at Ellis Island, the Irish immigration officials uh, couldn't pronounce these Polish names with a lot of syllables. So every Jew was like Cohen or Katz because those were familiar names. So names don't mean anything. And you, you, now I think you understand as well why names don't mean anything. Because even if he comes from a Kohen, he might be a Cholo. I, I mean, listen, let's assume I'm a Kohen. I mean, I, I was, you know, I thought I was a Kohen. But if my grandfather married a divorced woman, then all of his descendants are not going to be Kohanim anymore. That's the end of it. So even if you are a bona fide descendant of a Kohen, you can lose it by, by, by being a chalal. And once, once you've lost it, once you have one chalal, that ends the kahuna line forever and ever. Okay, the chalal. Chalal is not a kohen. That's why, you know, there is a genetic test that they developed. I don't know how they developed these things, which, which can show uh, whether a person is a descendant all the way back to Aram. They do a genetic test that shows that I am a descendant of Aram. So people raise the question, is that genetic test sufficient to establish a person 
as a Kohen? The answer is no. Now, it may be a negator, it may be a negative, meaning if I don't have that genetic marker, that may prove I'm not a Kohen. Because why don't I have the genetic marker? So it can function to exclude somebody. But it can never function to prove you're a Kohen. First of all, you could be a guy. I'm sorry, I'm referring to male. I mean, if, if, if a Kohen marries a guy, not a Gios, if a Kohen marries a guy, the kid is a guy, not, not a Jew, and yet he'll have the genetic marker as having male descent from Aram. So obviously, it can't prove you're a Kohen. And besides the fact that maybe a person's mother was a guy, he might be a, a cholo, he might be from a divorced woman, his great-grandfather might have married a divorced woman, etc., so therefore, this is what is called a false positive and a true negative. Meaning, if it shows an absence of marker, that could prove you're not a Kohen, but it's a false positive. If it shows the presence of a marker, that doesn't show you are a Kohen, it just shows you might be a Kohen, but it doesn't really resolve the doubt. Okay, everyone understands uh, that idea. And I'm assuming, by the way, that genetic tests are bichlal accepted. I mean, uh, if you, if there are posts that don't even accept genetic tests, so that wouldn't be relevant. But even if you accept the genetic test, this genetic test could only establish could only establish a negative. It could not establish a positive. Okay, are there any questions about uh, the kahuna list, right? Halala and the difference between a boy and a girl. That, yeah. I don't, I don't know if this is entirely relevant right now, but I was wondering what obligation does a man have then? If he, he believes that he might be a Cohen, what obligation does he have to like properly research it? And, and I just have the question, maybe, I don't know if you want to answer. Yeah. Um, the second would be, um, if there's someone who's acting as a Cohen, but you might have reason to believe they, they might be saying, what obligation do you have to say anything to anyone? Or to so, so as a, ge- as a general rule, uh, let, me, let me answer the second question first. It might be easier. As a general rule, we don't try to knock people off their pedestal, meaning if someone thinks he's a Cohen, so let him do it because now when there's a base on English, should be Yameno, things are going to be much stricter. <laughs> Meaning, uh, if you want to, if a person claims he's a calling, there's going to have to be a lot of proof, and a lot of people are going to be disqualified. But today, you know, we're not yet zocha to the base on Mikdash, so uh, what is he doing? He's being called first to the Torah. Okay, but those are not great sins, even if you're not a calling, so to speak. So generally speaking. We don't, go to, we don't go out of our way to disqualify people. In fact, the other way around, the impetus for disqualification comes from the Kohen himself who wants to be able to marry somebody. In other words, it's not me that will go over to, to a Kohen and say, I don't think you're a Kohen. It's he who will come to me and say, hey, is there any way I could marry this divorced woman or this woman that has a sexual history? So unless they are seeking reasons to try to determined they're not a Kohen, we generally just accept people's word for it, right? So that, that's that. Now, your first question was the other way around. Uh, if a person, what was it again? Say it again. Um, if a person has reason to believe they might be a Kohen, like a man does, what obligations do you have to, like, research and figure out if he is or is not? Well, it really depends, you know, when you say reason to believe, it's kind of, that's a big of a bit like of an... religious parents, relatives... Yeah, so in, those, in that case, you really should try to investigate it. But as I said before, 
we normally allow him to even believe the non-religious. In other words, he has a way out if, if he doesn't want to believe them, but we also allow him to follow that as well. Now, there's a point basically, is, again, let me just remind you, as I just said, once there's a base on Mikdash, the standards are going to be much, 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 much higher. But today, a guy walks into show, and I'm the Gabai, and I ask him, are you a Kohen? And he says, yes, I don't ask for proof, I don't ask for evidence. I say, okay, you say you're a Kohen, you're a Kohen. So today we don't really raise questions, but as I say, this is a temporary situation. And can a Kohen who's married a Gioris, can he still perform the duties of a Kohen? Oh, okay, so here, here's an interesting anomaly. Uh, so let, let, a Kohen enters a prohibited marriage. He marries a Gerusha, a divorced woman, or he marries a Gioris, or he marries a Zona, or he marries a Chalala. So what's interesting is, he is still a Kohen. It's, it's, it's fascinating. His child will be a Chalala, but he himself, or a Chalala, he himself is a Kohen, but, but, the rabbis imposed a penalty on him, that he is not given the honors of a Kohen until he separates from his prohibited wife. So this is what you might call temporary disqualification, meaning if he divorces the Grusha, he could be, he could be called to the Torah again. If he does not divorce the Grusha, he cannot be, meaning he's not permanently disqualified, but uh, there's a punishment on him until he separates himself from the situation. Again, it's an interesting anomaly that the Gemara itself remarks that the Kohen who commits the sin does not become a Chalal, but his child becomes a Chalal. It's like the child suffers for the father. A Kohen marries a Grusha and has a son. The son is not a Kohen, but the, co- the father is still a Kohen, right, in that, in that case. Now, in the case of uh, a Kohen who marries a woman whose father is Jewish, since after the fact, it's a permissible marriage, so once he's married her, he's allowed to do it. He doesn't even have that penalty because he's not obligated to get separated at that, at that point. Okay? All right, so that's kind of the, the Kohen laws. Yeah. Um, what are some other scenarios where like, you would need to have like, a proof, aside from like, marriage, that you, like, you're a Kohen? Uh, today, there's virtually nothing because, mm-hmm. because like this. Uh, a Kohen has a restriction of not going uh, to a cemetery. Mm-hmm. If he wants to be strict, <laughs> I have no reason, you know, he doesn't have to mm-hmm. prove, prove that, that's his own decision. Mm-hmm. Uh, now, a Kohen has the right to be called to the Torah first, yeah. and a Kohen has the mitzvah to bless the people. Mm-hmm. But as I indicated before, uh, we don't insist on evidence of that. Mm-hmm. So as a result... Uh, so really, it's only marriage when yeah. it's like time to like yeah. actually have like a piece of paper. That's correct. That's correct. So so we, we, we basically accept people at their word uh, for that today. Okay. Now let me mention a few other miscellaneous marriage restrictions. I think I've mentioned almost all of these at one time or the other, but just to bring them together. Uh, every woman that is widowed or divorced is supposed to wait 90 days before they get remarried whether it's widowed or divorced. Uh, the, the, the Hebrew term for this is havchana. Havchana means differentiation because the halachic concern was that perhaps she is pregnant from her first husband and a pregnancy is not always detectable until the first trimester. 
And therefore, the problem is, if she would get married after two months, maybe she would have a baby seven months later, and we wouldn't know if it's a premature baby from the second husband or a full-term baby from the first husband. And we wouldn't know who the child's father is, and that would wreak havoc with inheritance and the like. So as a result, the Chachamim enacted that a widow or a divorced woman should not get married to anybody until we determine after three months that there's no pregnancy there. And then we'll know whatever child is born is from the second husband. I had mentioned that many poskim say that this halacha can be satisfied today by a pregnancy test. So even if a woman wants to get married right after her divorce, some opinions will allow her to do a pregnancy test. And if the pregnancy test is negative, there is no, uh, no problem. By the way, uh, this law, though, of the three months is very, very strict, even in arbitrary, strange ways. Even if the widow is like 89 years old or 90 years old, so there's really, unless she's sorry, there's no real chance that she's carrying a baby. The rabbi still required this uniform waiting period, uh, no matter what. In fact, even if she had hysterectomy, she's not even capable of having children and, uh, and, and the like. So that's the 90-day period, which many postmen will allow uh, uh, a pregnancy test. Now, however, there's another halacha, and that is that a pregnant woman is not allowed to get married. So here's the point. If, if after the 90 days she's not pregnant, she can go ahead and get married. If she is pregnant, she'll be limited for the, the rest of the six months. Uh, a pregnant woman cannot get married. Why is that so? So the Gemara gives a reason. It might be hard to, to absorb exactly. And that is... The fear would be that optimally, well, actually, let me, actually, it's built on another thing. A pregnant woman cannot get married, and a nursing mother cannot get married. Now, Chazal assume that the optimal nursing period is two years after birth. So that actually means, that's a pretty strict rule, that actually means once a woman is pregnant, she cannot get married for, let's say, two years and nine months. That's 33 months. So when we say she can get married after 90 days, that's if she's not pregnant, meaning if after 90 days there's no baby, she can go ahead and get married on day 91. If there is a baby, she has to wait the whole duration of the pregnancy. And if, Mir Hashem, there is no miscarriage, she'd have to wait 24 months after that. And the reason is because it basically says that a new husband might not be sympathetic to the nursing and may try to stop it. And that could ultimately interfere with the welfare of the child. So... Again, that's a little complicated. So we have uh, these three stages here. Until we know she's pregnant, she can't get married, because otherwise we wouldn't know paternity. Once we know she's not pregnant, she can get married. If we know she is pregnant, she cannot get married for the duration of the pregnancy and for 24 months thereafter. 
And even if she stops nursing early, she cannot get married early because we don't want to create a situation where she has an incentive to stop nursing in order to marry. So therefore, the point is that she's not going to get the benefit. She's not going to get the benefit of, of that. Now, let me talk about mourning for a little bit, just to, just to complete the picture. What are the laws of Avelis and getting married? Avelis is mourning. And let's, let's look at it both on the part of the man and then part of the, part of the woman and, and, and the like. Uh, we know that if someone loses a relative, including a spouse, there's a certain period of Avelis. So let's first look at it from the man's perspective and then from the woman's because the halachas are going to be a little different. Uh, a man who loses his father and mother is in mourning for a year, 12 months. A man who loses any other relative, including a, a child, God forbid, a brother or sister, or even a wife, is only in mourning for 30 days. It's an interesting thing. You know, I mean, people ask the question sometimes. Um, that, I mean, it's, it's always a tragedy. It's always sad to lose, lose anyone that you love. But most people would feel that the loss of a child is a bigger tragedy in their life than the loss of a parent. Because the loss of a parent is the normal way of the world. That, you know, people die. There is death in the world until Tchiyas HaMesim. So why would the mourning for a parent be so much longer than the mourning for a child? A person loses, a person loses their six-year-old child. What a devastating tragedy it is. They only have to mourn for 30 days. And that, that, and that doesn't mean on day 31 they're going to feel great, but the halachas of mourning is only for 30 days. They lose a parent even if they, they're estranged from their parents. They got to mourn for a year, right? In fact, it's hard. Uh, there's even situations where, I mean, there are inter interesting prayers that were written. How do you mourn for an abu abusive parent? It's a very, I mean, uh, whatever. I mean, if anyone ever wants to ask me a shadows about it, you could ask me, but this is difficult issues. So the short answer is that the halachas of mourning are not based on the subjective feeling that a person has of their loss but it's based on obligations and duties of respect. I have to respect my parents. I have to honor my parents. Yes, I should also love them. I should care about them. But the point of the mitzvah of honor and respect is that even if, for whatever reason, and hopefully this shouldn't be the case, but even if I don't really love them so much, I don't care for them that much, the Torah says, so what? So the year is not because, you know, you're so heartbroken, you can't go on, although sometimes that is the case, and that should rightfully be the case. But rather, these are the Torah's imperatives of how you show honor and reverence for your parents. Okay, so it may very well be that a person losing a child might be a much, much bigger personal tragedy for them. But for my parents, I have to have honor and reverence, whether I feel heartbroken or not. 
and therefore this is what I owe them. Uh, do you understand? Know if someone has, is engaged, yeah. and they have a wedding planned, and Chaz Rishon, their parents died before the wedding, do they have to call yeah. the wedding off? Okay, uh, so, so now let, so not, so not, let me explain this. In other words, I gave you the mourning periods, but I, I didn't say how they applied to weddings. Oh. Okay, okay. So now we have a very, very important idea. Uh, and that is that, and again, I'm looking at it from the man's perspective. The women will be a little different. So let's say a man lost his parents, or one of his parents. So in theory, he is in mourning for a year. But that doesn't mean he can't get married for a year. The halacha actually is the following. There are a number of cases where he's even allowed to get married within, well, not within, after Shiva, after seven days. That is, if he has no children yet, so he has not fulfilled the mitzvah of being fruitful and multiplying, which in many first marriages, that'll be the case, right? Number two... If he has children, but they're young, so he needs a wife to kind of raise the children. Number three is kind of the opposite. He is feeble, and he needs a, a wife to take care of him or help him and the like. So these are three cases where a man in Avelos is allowed to get married after Shiva, after Shiva. So what would be the case where he couldn't? The case would be he already has children who are adults and he's in good health. <laughs> so in such a situation, he would have to wait. But even then, even then we have the situation that if the wedding plans were already made, he would be allowed to do the wedding plans. Okay? Now that's the perspective of the, of the man. Now... There is, however, another unique twist when he is a widower, meaning he's not a mourner because he lost his parents or lost a child or lost a sibling, uh, but rather he lost his wife. Now, technically, if he lost his wife, he's only a mourner for 30 days. And yet, paradoxically, his marriage restriction is longer. A man who lost his wife cannot marry until the passage of three pilgrimage festivals, which is, you know, now the three pilgrimage festivals are Pesach, Shavuos, Sukkos. Now, if you think about this, this can sometimes be as short as half a year, and sometimes as long as a year, depending on when the death occurred. If the death occurred right before Pesach, so your three pilgrimage festivals are Pesach, Shavuos, Sukkot. That's half a year. If, on the other hand, the death occurred after Sukkot, after Sukkot, you got to wait Pesach, Shavuos, after Sukkot, a year. So this is not a, an amount of time. This is a duration of three pilgrimage festivals. The reason that's given is an interesting reason, and that is, it is thought, this only applies to a widower, not a divorced person, it is thought that a man's mind will still be on his first wife, even during intimacy, and it's considered to be a very improper avera, 
for a man to have relations with one woman, thinking about another woman. So it was said that you need the three joyous experiences of Yamtiv to reorient his memories and his thoughts, to kind of reprogram him. And that's why he has to, he has to wait, uh, wait for that. Okay, so, so this I think I covered in terms of the man. Okay, so again, if the man is in mourning for his parent, which is a year, or a man is in mourning for his brother, sister, or child, which is 30 days, he is still permitted to get married within the mourning period if he has no children, or if he has young children, or if he is not in good, good health. Otherwise, he would have to wait the mourning period of a year or 30 days. With respect to a man who lost his wife, he is in mourning for 30 days. But here, he'd have to wait longer in order to get married because he'd have to, he'd have to wait for three pilgrimage festivals. But even here, if he had uh, the exceptions of no children, young children, or bad health, would kick in for that, ex that rule as well. Okay, and I'm, and I'm giving you a lot of different rules today. I hope uh, they're making sense. Slow me up if I'm going too, too fast. Or, um, and if he yeah. has young children, does that make it an obligation to get married, or is it just something that's... No, it's not, no, it's not an obligation. It, it really just depends on, on, on what he needs. Mm -hmm. In other words, he basically can say, as a father, I can't do this. You know? mm -hmm. So he would certainly be given a heter to get married. Okay? Uh, but it's up to him. You know, if, he's, if he's able to be a house parent and uh, the kids are doing fine... Now, again, if the kids are falling apart, then a rabbi might very well tell him, you know, you have an obligation. But, of course, he doesn't always have somebody waiting for him. <laughs> he has to find somebody to marry, too. Yeah. Does it matter if a man has not fulfilled his obligation and he only has daughters or he only has sons? Does he have to then fulfill that obligation? Yeah, yes, because, remember, as we said, uh, he, he does not fulfill his mitzvah until he has a son and a daughter. So, so even if he has some children... There may not be a fulfillment of the answer. Now, let's look at it from the woman's perspective. Now, now, the woman's period of mourning generally is the same period. For her parents, it is a year. Uh, for any other relative, it is 30 days, right? So, so th th that's exactly the same as the man. Uh, but uh, a woman does not have the mitzvah of pruervu. So, if the woman, so the woman would not be allowed to get married within the year, just because she has no children. Uh, and uh, the hector of young children may or may not apply because the woman might be more capable. That would depend on the circumstance of that. Uh, but other than that, she would normally have to wait a year till she gets married, so she'd have stricter thing. Now, that's if she lost her parents. If she lost a brother or lost a child, she could get married after 30 days. I'm sorry, I'm sorry, that's not correct. Uh, well, well, okay. In terms of mourning, she can get married after 30 days, but because of havchana, she'd have to wait 90 days or, or do a pregnancy test. See, this is important because there are two different rules you've got to consider. You've got to consider the laws of mourning and you have to consider the laws of havchana. Okay, so... If a woman lost, uh, let's say, a brother, 
and she's single, well, okay, if she's single, if she was never married, she can get married after 30 days. If she's widowed, she'd have to wait 90 days. Okay, in other words, uh, these are just, just be sure that you pigeonhole these two different categories. One is a problem of mourning, and the other is a problem of pregnancy, uh, which uh, requires either 90 days or a pregnancy test. Okay? So these are some things to consider about uh, being allowed to marry or not, uh, not to, to marry. Okay. Um, all right, so now I just want to talk about a little bit the Jewish marriage ceremony. So actually, now we're going to talk about a happier topic. Mm-hmm. Instead of uh, all of the problems, we'll talk about getting married. Uh, you should experience this soon. So this is a little bit of a hakdama uh, to what uh, is waiting down the pike. Uh, marriage in the Torah is very strange in some ways. First of all, let's go back to a basic. Is it prohibited for a man and a woman to have intimacy outside of marriage? Now, obviously, you've always learned yes, uh, it is prohibited. And indeed, this is the psak of the Rambam and the Shulchan Aruch, that there is an Isser Da'oraisa for an unmarried man and an unmarried woman to cohabit together. And as you know, not only is there an issue of the Arisa of intimacy, but we even have the issue of yichud, to be alone, and we have the issue of affectionate touching. Now the reason I say affectionate touching is because there are interesting questions, I don't want to go into all of them now. Uh, we call that negiyah, right? In fact, this is, there's an expression, I don't know if they use it around here. In the modern Orthodox community, uh, they uh, say, oh, I'm shomer or I'm not shomer. I, I don't know if you've heard that. Shomer, shomer negiyah. I observe negiyah, I don't know. Right. Uh, but technically, negiyah is not the right word, technically. Negiyah means touching. Technically, what is prohibited is what is called negiyah shel chiba, affectionate touching. That's hugging, kissing, holding hands romantically. That is called negia shel chiba. Negia not shel chiba. Many people permit. So, for example, this is why Rav Moshe Feinstein writes, although you see people are strict here, that a man is allowed to sit on a bus or a subway next to a woman, even if, you know, there's some touching. Because that is not in the context of any type of affection. That is why, one of the reasons, why you can have a male gynecologist, again, many say it's preferable not to, but I'm I'm talking about, or even someone like a male barber, or vice versa for a man having a female barber, because even if there's touching, it is not the issue is affectionate touching. Now, this is why there's a machlokas about shaking hands in a business context. This is going to be a challenge that a religious man or a religious woman faces in a business world. Right? You go to a business meeting and 
uh, a member of the opposite gender puts out their hand. Right? A man puts out his hand, or a woman puts out his hand to a man. Am I allowed to take the woman's hand? Are you allowed to take the woman's hand? There are some opinions that maintain, some, some opinions that maintain, that since this is a business gesture, this is not expressing affection or friendship, it would be permitted. And that was the custom among some rabbanim in America that at least if the woman put out her hand first, they would take it. Others are very, very strict. Ramosha Feinstein was very strict. The Rebbe was very strict. So I, I, hope, I, don't, I don't mean to undermine it. In other words, it is very, very clear that at least if you follow uh, Chabad, but the truth is even, even mainstream yeshiva, you don't, do, you don't take on this leniency. But I just want to explain to you the basis of those who do is because they maintain that business relationships do not fall under the category of Nagiya Shochiba. And even Rav Moshe, who permitted sitting next to a woman on a bus, did not permit the shaking of, of hands. So we can be pretty confident that if you're not allowed to shake a woman's hand, you're not allowed to hold your girlfriend's hand, then of course you can't have intimacy with her. Because, I mean, that, that's kind of kalvachomer and the like, right? So we're going to go with that. So, as a result, the only way men and women can meet together is in the context of a holy relationship, a sanctified relationship, and that sanctified relationship is goat kedushin. Now, what's interesting is that in the Torah, a Jewish marriage required two different stages. Two separate stages. Stage one, part one, is called Eirusin, which is also called Kiddushin. Stage two is called Nisuin. Okay, so stage one, Eirusin, also called Kiddushin. Stage two is Nisuin. Now, it's very important that you know the difference between modern Hebrew and rabbinic Hebrew. In modern Hebrew, erusin means engagement. So, if you have a friend that's getting engaged and they're having, in Yiddish they call it a vort, but in Hebrew they'll say, oh, will you come to the erusin? That means the engagement party. In modern Hebrew, erusin is engagement. In rabbinic Hebrew, or even in the Lushen of the Torah, Erosin is part one of the marriage ceremony. <coughs> Meaning after halachic erosin, the woman is a married woman. So here is how the two stages work. Stage one, the chassan gives the kala an object of value that's worth a penny. Today it would be a wedding ring, but it doesn't have to be a ring. It could be a water bottle. It could be a stamp it could be a penny, it could be a potato chip. <laughs> Anything of value of a penny in front of two witnesses and declares, there's a certain formula that you'd go, although it's good in English too, hare at mikudeshet li, but you are sanctified to me, 
So we say betabasu with this ring, but if you're giving a potato chip, you would say with this potato chip, im chatif tapuchi adamazu, kidas Moshe v'Yisrael, in accordance with the laws of Moshe and Yisrael, and she has to accept it. If she says no, they're not married. <laughs> he gives her the potatoes. But no, I don't want that. She's not married. But if she accepts it in front of the witnesses, that is the end of erusin. Erusin. That's the end of it. Meaning, what's the that. acceptance? It's a, it's a verbal acceptance, or no, just taking it. Does he he extends it to her? She takes it knowing that he's giving it to her for marriage. He can't trick her. He can't say, oh, would you like a potato chip? And after he takes a potato chip, says, oh, you're married to me. He can't do that. He has to say it before he gives it to her. Before he gives it to her, he says, I am giving this to you for the sake of marriage. Her taking of it, she doesn't have to say yes, her taking of it is her acceptance, and she is now an ashes ish. She is now a married woman. If she were to change her mind a minute later, or if he were to change his mind a minute later, there would have to be a get. It is not engagement. It is married. If she commits adultery in the time of the Beis HaMikdash, she could get the death penalty for it. Okay, this is called erusin. So erusin is simply the giving of an object of value in front of two Shomer Shabbos witnesses Declaring that you're doing it for me, that, even thinking, forgive my male centeredness here, uh, that the man says it to the woman for the purpose of marriage, she accepts it willingly, she is now an ishet ish. Now, if you were to go to an erusin 2,000 years ago, that's all that happened. There was no ketubah, there was no sheva brachas, there was no chuppah. But she's an ashes ish. Now, what originally that meant was she was a married woman, but she actually went back to her father's home or her own home, wherever she was living, for a whole year. A whole year! The marriage was not consummated. Um, his, his marital relationship is somewhat limited. I'll give you a few examples. A woman that's an arusa is a married woman. But because the marriage has not yet been consummated, if she dies, the husband does not inherit her. The husband is not obligated to support her. That's called mizonot. And the husband is not entitled to her earnings. In other words, there's a marriage, but it's not a full marriage. Now, she remained in her father's home. The, re- the reason why I say in her father's home is because in the Torah's time and even in the rabbi's time, women typically got married very, very young. I, I don't mean child marriages, but typically a woman got married at 12 or 12 and a half. So she went from her, husband, from her father's home, from her parents' home, to her husband's home. Today, if we had such a thing as Erson, which we really don't today, it probably would have been from her home because by the time a woman gets married, she's usually, depending on, depending on society, she's usually living by her, uh, independently. Not always. In the Haredi world, it's actually relatively, you know, pretty common that even if a woman is uh, 24, 25, she is still with her parents until she gets married. So that depends on the situation. Post-Ersin? Huh? Post-Ersin? 
No, no, no. Uh, well, yeah, well, post Erson, yeah, post Erson. Yeah, but, but again, t- today we don't have the division. Okay, now, what happened after a year? After a year, people would get together a second time. And now we're going to have part two ceremony. Part two comprises the following things. Seven special blessings were recited. And those are the famous Sheva Brachos. A kasuva, which is marital obligations, is written and signed by witnesses. This is all in the seed. This is Nesuin. Nesuin. A year later. Okay, a year later. Sheva Brachos. The recitation, the, the, I'm sorry, the, the, the signing of a kasuva. And then some aspect of consummation. I'm going to explain what that means. Those are the three steps of part two. Sheva brachos, kisuva, and some aspect of consummation. That's going to be, I'm going to define that in a minute. And after that point, she moves from being an arusa to being a nasua. And once she is a nasua, the marriage is complete. He inherits her. He is obligated in her support, etc. Now, I said the three stages of nisuin are sheva brachos, kisuva, and some type of consummation. Now, what do I mean by some type of consummation? I don't mean they're physically intimate. I mean, they will. I mean, after nisuin, they can and should be physically intimate. But you don't need the physical consummation to make nisuin. Okay, you understand what I'm saying? Nisuin does not entail physical consummation. But there are two basic uh, ways Nesuin is done, the Machlokas. Some say Nesuin is done by the Hassan bringing the Kala into his home. It's kind of a symbolic. He picks her up, so to speak, from her parents' home or from her home, and he takes her into his home. And by bringing her into his home, again in the presence of two witnesses, that makes Nesuin. And some have a stricter view that it's not enough for him to bring her into his home, but they must have a yichud, a seclusion, in which consummation, in other words, a private enough seclusion, that consummation could have taken place, even though it didn't. This is a, this is a stricter standard than just bringing her into his home. This is called yichud. Yichud is seclusion. Hara'oi, which is fitting for bia, for intercourse, even though there was no consummation, but it had to be a yichud. Hara'oi, labia. Right, so these are the two stages. Erusin and nisuin 
And they were separated by a whole year. Now, why is that? Why were, why were they separate? I mean, you, you can imagine it's pretty hard. I mean, she's a married woman, but they're not allowed to be together. They're not allowed to live together until they have Nisuin. Why do we wait a whole year? So the truth of the matter is this. Even when they waited a whole year, that was not a requirement. They were permitted to wait up to a year if they wanted. If they wanted to do it right away, they, they could. But the reason was primarily economic. That's why they were given permission to delay a whole year. In the olden days, the wife's family had to give a dowry. There was a substantial amount of wealth that the wife's family would give. So they were entitled to have up to a year to gather the necessary economic resources. That's why Jean Erison and Nisuin was up to a year. Now, think about the Jewish wedding ceremony that you see today. Now, I'm not talking about the Badek, and I'll get to that. I'm not, I'm not talking about the pre-Chuppah stuff. I'll talk about the pre-Chuppah stuff later. I'm just talking about under the Chuppah. You actually see, if you can now analyze, we actually combine Erosin and Nesuin the same time. When the chassan gives the ring to the kala and says, Harei at mikudeshes li betabazu kedas moshevi Yisrael, that is erusin. After erusin, we read and sign the kesuva, which is part one of Nisuin, you know, in any order. Then we recite Sheva Brachos and then the Chassan and the Kala go into what is called the Yichud Room. What is the Yichud Room? A private room in which witnesses stand outside the door so nobody enters. And there are no windows that anybody could look into. Now, you understand, nobody is saying they're consummating the marriage in the Yichudro. That would be totally improper. But it has to be a seclusion which would have been possible for that consummation. Now, so here's the thing that's interesting. It's a different picture than you might think. We think... That she, when, when asked about Sheva Brachos, oh, Sheva Brachos is the end of the wedding ceremony. Actually, it's not. Sheva Brachos is the beginning of part two of the wedding ceremony. In other words, the erisin is finished with the giving of the ring. The Kasuva and the Sheva Brachos and the Yichud are part two that originally would have taken a year after the erisin. You see? So the Sheva Brachos under the Chuppah is not the end of the ceremony. It is the beginning of the second half of the ceremony, which used to be a year later, of Nisuin. Now, you'll remember, though, when I talked about what Nisuin was, I gave you two, two definitions. One is the Chassan brings the Kala into his home 
And the other is Yichud Haroi Labia. Now, the way I describe the Yichud room, it's Yichud Haroi Labia, but the Chassan did not bring the Kala into his home. How, how are you fulfilling consummation like the other opinion? So, because of this, it is actually proper that uh, the Chassan stipulate, or his family, that, that in the contract, that the Chassan is renting that room. So it technically is his property. When his wife comes in, that way he is bringing his wife into his home. Halachically, it is his home. See, and that way you're makayim both types of nesuin, kinisa lebeito, bringing his wife into his home, and yichud harauy labia, seclusion in which physical consummation would have been possible. So again, be sure you understand this. Physical consummation is not necessary for Nisuin. Uh, the other way around, Nisuin will now permit physical cohabitation, but, but, but the cohabitation itself is not part of the Nisuin, but many opinions say it has to be a Yichud HaRa'oi Labia in order to be Nisuin. So today, we do Erusin and Nisuin the same time. When did that start? I mean, when the Gemara talks about it, the Gemara always talks about it a year apart. When did it start that we combine both ceremonies the same time? Uh, interestingly enough, uh, it is said that this is attributed to Rashi, the great Rashi in France in the 10 hundreds, enacted for his local community that they should combine the two because it was too much of a moral challenge to have a man and a woman who were married and they couldn't consummate their marriage until Nisuin. So it was thought that to take away that particular uh, source of tension, we would do Erson and Nisuin right away, which would therefore allow physical union and living together right after marriage, instead of having a year where the woman is married but she's not living with her husband. Okay, so it's important to understand that this is why the Jewish wedding ceremony, again, I'm not, I'm not talking about the pre-chopah stuff, I'll talk about that later. That's kind of a frosting on the cake, but I want you to understand the basic cake. The basic cake is combination of erusin and nisuin. That's the giving of the ring is erusin, and then the kasuba, the sheva brachos, and the yichud is nisuin. And therefore, by the time the kala walks out of the cheder ha-yichud, uh, with her husband, she is a completely married woman. She is a nesua. By the way, with this you can understand the following little dreidel. We know that dreidel, no pun intended for Hanukkah, but uh, we know that a married woman is supposed to have her hair covered, at least in public. Right? We know that. That's a tzachiv. The question is, uh, when does she have to have her hair covered? I mean, let's say we. When she walks down the chuppah, strictly speaking, she's not married yet, so technically, her hair doesn't have to be covered. But the question is, as soon as he gives her the ring, she's a married woman. So does she have to cover her hair before the chuppah so that her hair will be covered? So, so sometimes you'll hear people, rabbis say, she doesn't have to have her hair covered uh, 
till she comes out of the yichud room. Meaning she can have her hair uncovered under the chuppah. Now, you might ask, well, why? She's a married woman as soon as he gives her the ring. What's the, what, what has changed when she leaves the yichud room? The answer is very simple. Many poskim say, the chiyav of Kisoy Harosh is only on a nasua, not on an arusa. Under the chuppah, she's only an arusa. She's not a nasua till she's in the yichud room. You see? And in Achinami, at a time when there was a whole year of separation, she would be allowed to have uncovered hair for that year. Now, we don't have a year anymore. Now it's only going to be, you know, a half an hour. But you see, it's a very logical point. Meaning, yes, she is a married woman after she gets the ring. But she is only Arusa, not Nesua. The Chiyav of Kisa Yarosh is after Nesua. Nesua is the Cheder Now, other people are strict. And the reason they're strict is because they maintain that the Chiyav of Kisa begins from Erson. So now you have a Machlokas. The reason why there are two different customs is precisely based on this idea is the chiyav of covering hair based on erisin or based on a tzuma. Now, there actually is a third view, actually, which is even more extreme. The third view says that the chiyav of covering hair depends on physical consummation. There actually is a shita that says that even at the chasna, after yichud, the woman's hair could be uncovered, and it's only after the marriage is physically consummated that uh, her hair has to be covered. That is, that is a third view. Um, again, I think uh, among, uh, both in the yeshiva world and among Hasidim, we generally uh, do not follow that third view. Uh, but there is, there is a such a... A lot of Chabad do follow Oh, they do follow it? Okay, okay, all right, that's good to know. Okay, okay. So there are three different views, right? Is the Chiyav Kisoy under the Chuppah? Is the Chiyav Kisoy after the Cheder HaYichot? Is the Chiyav Kisoy after physical consummation? I'm not telling you how to paskin, uh, but just be aware of this. But at least you understand uh, why the chuppah is, is different than the cheder because under the chuppah, the woman is an arusa. She is not an asua till the cheder, cheder hayichud. Okay? So that's... Uh, and again, I, I mean, in terms of counseling, sometimes, you know, uh, for whatever reason, a kala has accepted covering her hair, but it's very, very difficult for her uh, to chasna whatever that, and and I I can't say I fully understand why, but apparently a lot of women do say it's very, very difficult. So you have a makam to be makel till after consummation, till the next morning, or or whatever it would be. Okay, everyone understands the basic uh, structure. Again, I'm gonna, I am am gonna talk about the frosting, about the kalas, the chasim station, the kalas, the and We'll talk about that. But that is, those are what you might call add-ons, right? Those are things that were added on to the basic structure. But the basic structure is erusin and nesuin. Now, let me point out that, I'll mention one add-on. One very early add-on to the erusin was that we want to recite a blessing over wine and a blessing over the marriage itself. So, before the chassan gives the, the kala a ring, there are two brachos that are recited under the chuppah, not by the chassan, but by the masader kedushin. The masader kedushin is simply the rabbi that is conducting the marriage ceremony. 
The first bracha is Borei Priyagavet, on wine. The second bracha is like on the mitzvah of getting married, that God has sanctified us with his commandments. And Baruch uh, Hashem, who has sanctified uh, his nation Israel with chupa and kedushin, right? The chupa and the kedushin. Now, when the Masada Kedushin makes those two brachos, he is actually making them for the chasen and the kala. He's being motzi them. They should have kavana that he's making the bracha for them. So after he makes the bracha, the chasan takes a sip of the wine, and then he doesn't hand it to his kala yet, because they're not married yet. It's not proper for him to give it to her yet. So he gives it to her mother usually, who lifts the veil, and the kala takes a little sip. Uh, remember that if they're healthy and able, both the chasan and the kala were fasting that entire day. So the very first thing that they're eating is some wine, which may not be the best thing on the stomach. Um, the truth is, we are very, very makel on the fasting requirement. If people are not comfortable, they get sick or whatever it is. You know, you talk to a rabbi, I mean, uh, you know, we, we are lenient, but still, uh, if, if it's not too difficult for them, uh, they should very much try to, try to fast. And then, after the two brachas, we then have the chasan giving the kala the ring. Now, when we have part two, ksuba, and we recite sheva brachas, you'll recall that one of the sheva brachas actually is a blessing over another cup of wine, at the end of which they again drink. Now, you may wonder, why do I make two bored priyagavan? I mean, I made a bored priyagavan before Harrison. Why do we make a bored priyagavan again, and why do we have a different cup of wine? Why can't they use the same cup of wine? The answer is, this is historically a zecher that these, these used to be two ceremonies that were a year apart. The reason why Erisin has a cup of wine and Nisuin has a cup of wine is because these were separated by a year. So even though we combine them today, to remember that these are two separate ceremonies. There is a separate cup of wine for each of these ceremonies. There's a cup of wine for the Erosin ceremony with its own bracha and a cup of wine for the Nisuin ceremony. Yeah. Um, quick question. If someone like economically can't pay, is there still that space to give them time between the two? or? You know... I, I think it would be, I mean, I mean, halachically it's possible. It is halachically possible, but it would be very strongly discouraged. It's, it's against the Minog Yisrael at this point that we don't, we don't do that. Instead, we would basically say, delay the marriage. I mean, you have a long engagement. Right. Instead of saying, let's have a marriage and delay the, uh, the Nisuin, we would encourage them to delay the, uh, you know, yeah. prolong the engagement, which is, in modern Hebrew, it actually means prolong the Ersin, but it doesn't have the same, it doesn't have the same, um, Okay? Um, now, like all mitzvahs, when you do mitzvahs on wine, it's best to make it on red wine. But for chasanas, we have special leniencies, where some allow for white wine. And the reason is very simple, because wine tends to spill, and a white uh, wedding dress, you know, makes a stain. So some are, do have a minute that adds chasanas. Uh, they use white wine, 
uh, because that'll have less of a discolor coloring effect on the collar or Hassan's white shirt uh, as well. Okay, so that's why you'll find some people do that. Other people say, well, well, is the red wine is proper, and if um, it's getting dirty because of the wine, that's a cover, that's a way of honoring, honoring Hashem. Okay, uh, again, we'll talk more about it, but I just want you to get the basic structure uh, down. Thank you. Yep, all right, be well.